today um, we're going to have a special guest speaker. His name is Tony Scarcello, and Tony is here this morning, joined by his his wife Kelsey, and um, very excited for them to share with you. Uh, Tony and Kelsey are planting a Foursquare Church down in Springfield, Oregon. Any Lane County people out there in the room? I know we got a couple. Yep, I'm a Lane County person. Yep, we won't hold it against any of you because that is me too. Nor you guys. No, yeah. Uh, planting a church. Uh, Tony has also uh, published a book that I recommend. It's up here on the screen called We Regenerate, Following Jesus After Deconstruction, a powerful um, book that has great insight, includes Tony's own story, which is powerful and um, very moving for today's world. I encourage you to pick that up. You can buy it on Amazon. Correcto? Yes. Okay. Very good. And I don't know why he chose to use Spanish for that word. I, he does. I don't even think you speak Spanish. That was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to get myself in deep water here. Yeah. Um, and uh, I got to know Tony uh, during the pandemic, uh, especially during the pandemic. Um, I would be delivering food for the food pantry, and I would often call Tony on Sunday afternoons, and we would talk about all things in life. I'm just really proud of this young man and the work that he is doing. And yeah, so he's going to come up here in just a moment to share. But first, for this Christmas, or this Advent season, we get to hear the Advent scriptures read by the next generation at New Hope. Take a look. Jeremiah 30, 3, 14 through 16. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised to them. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. In that day, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. 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 Well, good morning. It's very, very good to see you and um, just so honored to be here at New Hope. Um, I wanted to say real quick, I don't, so I've, been, I've had the like privilege of working in churches for like the last decade or so. And um, I, whenever I get an opportunity to guest speak at another church, I, I always want to make sure to make point of this. But are you aware of how like loved you are by your leadership here at this church? Like, has that, like, are you aware of, like, how much time spent in prayer? And Isaac talking to me, he, we, we talked about, we're for once a week for a while, and a lot of it was just, like, stuff that would, that he would be genuinely moved by your stories and your trials and your victories and all of that kind of stuff. You guys are so well-loved and served here. Um, I consider your pastor a pastor uh, to me. Um, he's been a mentor, and New Hope, in a lot of ways, is kind of our little church plant that we're working on, is we kind of look to as, like, leaders and people who are leading the way as far as vision and hope and, and, and like, spiritual, like, like maturity, and um, you guys have modeled fidelity and faithfulness to the Lord. 
um, so well during uh, last few years where it feels like fidelity and faithfulness to the Lord was kind of hard to come by, even in church. And you guys have done that so well. And so I consider it an honor to be here. Um, I'm so glad uh, to get to talk with you. And just a little bit about our church plant. We're launching a church called Open Table Church in Springfield, Oregon. Um, Our mission is to practice the way of Jesus together for the good of our city. Um, We believe that, yes, Christianity, the way of Jesus, it is at least a set of beliefs. It's not less than that, but it is so much more than a set of beliefs. It is a practice. It's a way of life. It's something that you adopt into your body and you live into. And so for us, we are a community that is all around the practices of Jesus, that's centered around becoming from the inside out the type of people who look like Jesus, who smell like Jesus, who sing like Jesus. And our hope is to reach, I'm an evangelist at heart, so our hope is to reach people who who would probably never come into the four walls of a church because they've heard horror stories or, you know, they had that grandma who was divorced and the church completely shunned her and kicked her out. And in their minds, that's what church is and that's who Jesus is and that's what Christians are. And along with you guys, like we believe that it's important to change people's minds about who God is who we are, what makes for a good and meaningful life. And so, again, I say, New Hope, you guys are leading the way in that for us. And so I consider it an honor to be here and partner with you guys. So um, I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to dive in. Lord, I just thank you so much for your faithfulness, um, for your uncanny ability to develop strategic relationships amongst fellow followers. Um, I thank you for, as we talked this morning, about hope and um, the hope that you have for us. And Lord, I know that there are people in this room who are carrying heavy things, um, who hope almost seems like a foreign construct to them. And Lord, I just ask that this morning your hope would permeate our hearts, that you would sink into our hearts and our minds, that you would give us a vision and a logic uh, to have a deep, uh, almost rebellious hope in a culture of despair. And we love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Also, uh, is Lainey still in the room or did she go with the kids? Because, like, that's a tough act to follow. Like, she did, that was really, really cool. That was, Kelsey and I were sitting there like, oh, shoot, like, do I even need to go up there? That was a good word. Like, <laughs> so I want to invite you to Christmas of 2002. I wake up Christmas morning, and the first thing that I smell is cinnamon rolls, and I hear, like, outside the house, outside of my bedroom door, my mom and my grandma setting the table, and I come outside, and we're, we're at my grandma's house. My brother, we had this tradition where my brother and I and all of our cousins on my mom's side of the family would stay over at grandma's house, and our parents would go back to their homes, and then they would come back Christmas morning and throw on a Christmas feast, and we come out, and the, the, because there, there was, like, 15 of us cousins, like, the Christmas tree, the living room would just be full of presents. And like there was just this, this sense of anticipation and hope and excitement. And like when those cheesy like Hallmark movies that talk about Christmas magic, like you kind of, you think back to those memories and you're like, yeah, like Christmas magic, like that's a real thing. And I remember thinking back to that time and it is a season of so much hope and life and light and warmth. Christmas of 2002. Fast forward 10 years. Christmas of 2012. I wake up in my father's house, and it's cold, and there's no cinnamon rolls being made, there's no cousins, there's no grandparents, there's no presents under the tree. It's just me and my dad and my brother and I in a house reeling from the recent loss of my mom to a 10-year-long battle with drug addiction. And this Christmas, that Christmas, I remember like listening to an Advent sermon about hope and thinking like, this is just garbage. 
Because my mom had, had wrestled with, with this addiction for so long and we had prayed over her and I had fasted for her and we had people from church come over and lay hands on her and we, we had several like uh, interventions to sit down with her and ask her to get better and, and, we, and I actually genuinely fully believed, like 100%, had zero doubt that she was going to get healed and make a turnaround and that she would still be with us, that she would get to meet my wife, she'd get to meet my kids. I had zero doubt. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, on Mother's Day of uh, 2012, I get a phone call from my dad, and we find out that we had lost her to an overdose. Completely derailed me. How do, you, how do you hang on to hope after something like that? After you feel like you've got this promise from God that he's going to come, he's going to heal, and he's going to restore. How do you come to church on a Sunday morning and hear a message about hope without sitting there and thinking, like, this is just trite. Like, it's really easy for you to get up there and to talk about hope. But, like, there's people in this room who are carrying, like, a similar experience. You have a marriage that's fallen apart. You have a kid who's walked away from their relationship with the Lord. You have your own internal anxieties and depressions, and you come here on Sunday mornings, and even a conversation about hope almost feels like too much to ask for from you. There is this culture of despair that we live in. Despair comes to us so much easier than hope. And it seems like it's the the ethos, it's the spirit of our age. In 2016... It was reported that deaths of despair went from an average of 50,000 back in 1994 to an average of 160,000 in 2016. Deaths of despair are deaths that come as a result of uh, some sort of coping mechanism that somebody uses when they're experiencing despair in their life. So it could be alcohol, liver failure from alcohol poisoning or a drug overdose or suicide. From 1994 to 2016, from 50,000 to 160,000 average a year. And then during COVID lockdown numbers and protocols, those numbers saw another skyrocket. Psychology Today reported that the average young person today, between the ages of 12 and 23, experiences the same level of anxiety as the average person in an insane asylum in the 1950s. The average, average young person between 12 and 23, same level of anxiety that got people institutionalized in the 50s. According to a survey conducted by Mental Health America, the state of Oregon ranks among the top three most anxious states in the country. So if you're new to Oregon, welcome. It's terrifying and we're all freaking out. Like, <laughs> we live in a culture of unparalleled despair and anxiety. Despair is almost the air we breathe. And it is in this moment... Today, this morning, in your personal life, in our culture, in our world, that we come and we approach the Advent candle of hope. Our text this morning comes from Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. But before we dive into this, a little bit of context is necessary. As many of you know, the nation of Israel was a nation that God was in covenant relationship with. That means that God was betrothed or promised in faithfulness, faithful relationship uh, to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel was called to be in faithful relationship with God. And, and the best way like, to think of this is it's like a marriage relationship. And in fact, the Old Testament uses this analogy to, to explain God's relationship with the nation of Israel over and over and over again is God, this faithful pursuing groom, and Israel, the bride that is the apple of his eye. And God offers to Israel this opportunity to be the recipients of his blessing, and that they were to take the blessing that God would give this tiny little nation, and that they were to take that nation and they, that blessing, they were to use that and spread that throughout the whole world. And as Isaac used the term earlier this morning, they were blessed to be a blessing. God gave them this blessing and they were meant to give it away. But 
But in addition to being a source of blessing in a culture of really barbaric, harsh realities, they were also called to be a priestly presence in the world. When God is commissioning the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19, he says to them that you will be unto me a kingdom of priests. The priest's role was to be mediators between God and humanity in the ancient world. So literally imagine this way, like God is saying, I'm creating not just, not just a career for some people, not just a calling for some people, but I'm literally creating an entire nation and their role, their responsibility is to be a mediator between me and the rest of the world and, and to be a reconciler between me and the rest of the world. So rather than being a nation of politics and kings and power hunger and fear mongering, the nation of Israel was called to be a nation of blessing and priests and reconciliation between a harsh world and a loving God. And God makes it clear from day one that he is going to be faithful to them no matter what to the ends of the earth. But if Israel refuses to honor their end of this agreement, if they refuse to be that blessing to the world, if they refuse to be that priestly presence, if they become like the nations that have oppressed them and exploited them and abused them, if they become oppressive and exploitative and abusive to other nations or to their own people, God is going to remove that blessing from them. Now, notice, this is really important. He's going to remove that blessing from them, but he's not going to remove his relationship from them. Does that make sense? It's a really important distinction. Like God is going to offer, the offers has on offer this blessing in their own land a land flowing with milk and honey is a term the Old Testament uses over and over and over again. But he does say, like, if you refuse to honor your terms of the agreement, if you don't hold up your end, the blessing is going to go away, but my relationship and my faithfulness and my love for you is never going to go away. How many of you guys need to hear that word this morning? Sometimes you might think, like, I feel the blessing of God stripped from my life, but you need to know that the relationship, and maybe you have made a mess of things in your life, and you're here and you're aware that there are some choices that you have made that have led to a dead end, and you feel that blessing stripped from your life, and you need to know God has not abandoned you. God is with you. He is in covenant faithfulness to you. But as the nation of Israel became more kingly than priestly, Israel lost sight of God, their first true love, and they left him for other lovers. They left him for other gods. They became the same type of nation that God had rescued them from in Egypt. They became exploitive. They abused the poor and the vulnerable. They became greedy and they sought power more than they sought loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and strength. It's important to ask, how did Israel go so wrong? How did Israel go from this nation that, that God had set apart, that had intimate covenant relationship with the creator of the universe? How did they go from that to being a people who God is having to say, I am removing my blessing from you? And the answer is, is that Israel's went into the direction that their hopes took them. Listen to that. Israel went the direction that their hopes took them over time. As Israel started asking God for a king, they didn't want God to lead them anymore. They wanted a king to lead them. They wanted to be like the rest of the world and everybody else had a king. Eventually their hopes went away from this vision that God had casted for them, from this covenant that he was forming with them. And their hopes went to the rulers that they had put in place. They wanted to have power. 
They wanted to have wealth. They wanted to prosper. They, wanted, they didn't want to have to rely on faith to protect themselves from other warring nations. They wanted to have their own military power and their own strength and their own source to pull from so they didn't need to rely on God anymore. They wanted to be able to be self-sufficient, reliant, independent people. And when they did that, once they started pursuing those kings, their hopes went away from this vision that God had cast from this nation. Their hopes went from being a priestly blessing to a world to being an independent, autonomous, empire in the world. And as their hopes shifted towards these new rulers, so did their desires, so did their choices, so did their holiness, until they became the exact type of empire that God was hoping to contradict with them. He was hoping to contradict abuse and oppression and exploitation with this nation, and instead they became that exact type of nation. And so, just as God had promised, he removes his blessing nation of Babylon comes in, they ransack Israel, they burn it down to ash, and again, after so much time, and honestly, on God's part, hundreds of years of warning, hundreds of years of prophets coming and saying, hey guys, just really in dramatic, robust ways, trying to get their attention to change their mind. It's not like God was just like, one and done, you screwed up and I'm taking this from you. He, he gave them lots of time to make a change and to repent and to turn from their abusive and corrupt ways, and they didn't do it. And so they again became servants and captives in a foreign land. And if ever there was a time in this country's history where all hope seemed lost, where despair came easier than hope, it was, when, it was the moment when Israel is watching their city and their temple burnt to the ground and they are again being taken as captives after so much time fighting and hustling for their own land. And this is how we arrive at our Advent reading this morning. These words of profound hope uttered by Jeremiah come to Israel when they are at their most hopeless. And so, again, the reading from Jeremiah, starting in verse 14. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised them. In those days, at the, and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, and he will do what is just and righteous throughout the land. And in that day, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. So even though Israel seems cut off and finished as a nation, in another translation, it gives this picture of, of the, the, this descendant from David kind of being like a, a new branch growing out of a cut-down stump. And even though Israel is cut off and cut down as a nation, they're not uprooted because their, their origins are divine origins. They were created by God and for God. So because of that purpose, there's nothing that they can do to completely rid themselves of the earth unless God himself decided to rid himself from them. But as we know, God is faithful to the unfaithful. And so Israel still, this remnant still exists, this spirit, this dream of God to have a people set aside for him who are a priestly presence to the world. It is still alive and well, even though Israel is crushed down. And God offers, this, offers them this hope but notice that this hope that God offers them. In this prophecy, do you see God saying, and someday you are going to have your land back and more? Do you see God saying, I'm going to make you victorious, wealthy, powerful people? What does God say? What's the hope here? What's the promise? I'm going to give you a new type of ruler. 
You wanted a king. I'm going to give you a king who's going to lead your hopes and your desires towards God and not away from God. I'm going to give you a king who has the resources to deliver on the things that you hope for and the deepest achings and longings of your heart. And this king, unlike every other king in Israel's history, this king is going to be a king who rules with justice and righteousness. Justice meaning that he will not oppress and abuse and, and exploit the poor. He will not become greedy. He will not seek world domination through military power. He will be a just ruler. Righteousness, meaning he will be incorruptible. His desires, his agenda is going to be in complete alignment with God's agenda. That's the righteousness and justice that God is going to give Israel. God is going to give them a ruler worthy of Israel's hope because this ruler actually has the resources to deliver on it. And so we know based off of 3,000 years of removal from when this prophecy came, that that ruler did come, and that ruler's name is what? Jesus. Jesus. That ruler came in the most unexpected place, in the most unexpected way, probably way longer later than anybody actually wanted that ruler to come. <laughs> but he came and his name was Jesus, and we know that this ruler, this King Jesus, did not come only to redeem Israel from their corruption and their abuse and their pain, but he came to redeem the whole world. He came to start a new Israel project or complete the new Israel project through this Jesus and to create a new remnant of people who will be a priestly presence in the world, who will be mediators between God and man, who will be blessed to be a blessing. And we now have the option to witness the reign of Jesus, to fix our hopes and our desires on him and live a life that is thrilling and fulfilling, free from the idolatry that corrupted the nation of Israel. We have that option, but it should be painfully obvious by now that even though we have that option, we're not always so good at taking that option of witnessing the reign and rule of Jesus. I think I, I don't, I'm not just speaking for myself when I say it is really hard for me to want to rely on God to define good and evil for me. It's really hard on me to want to rely on God to define what makes for a good and meaningful life. I think I know. I've seen the advertisements. I know what makes for a good and meaningful life. If I can get a sweet house and a sweet job and a sweet phone and a sweet car, then I have a good... God doesn't know. God wants me to be poor and to give my money away. What does he know, right? It's really hard to trust God to define those things for us. But the importance of putting hope in its rightful place, the importance of putting our hope in this ruler, King Jesus, cannot be stressed enough. You know, if you're familiar, if you've seen any documentary about prisoners of war or read any book, you know that for the prisoners of war, those people who thought that they were going to be home by Christmas versus those people who were like, you know what, we have no idea when we're going to get home, so we just got to tough it out. The people who thought that they were going home earlier always died quicker. They either took their own life or they would provoke their officers and have themselves murdered or they would stop eating or they would go from disease and they wouldn't sleep. It's those, those people who put their hope in a short-term solution were the ones who died first, but the ones who put their hope in a more realistic timeline, who said, you know what, my hope is not going to be in getting out of this as quickly as possible. My hope is going to be in making it through another day so that maybe someday I can get home to my loved ones. Those are the ones who lived longer. Misplaced hope leads to disordered desires, which leads to broken living. Misplaced hope energizes and it fuels a culture of despair. How wild that we live in a time where we've never had more money, never had more technology, never had more options of being medicated from any type of pain or illness that we can have, and yet somehow we are still more desperate than we've ever been. 
This ethos of despair is still so thick in spite of all of those things. And I would argue it's because the hope that we've put in has not been in its rightful place. So I want, to, I want to spend the rest of our time together by just giving three reasons why this King Jesus, why this new ruler prophesied by Jeremiah is reason to hold fast hope. I think, I, and I think it's important to ask this question as we look around, are things actually as desperate as they seem or as hopeless as they seem? Are things actually as miserable as they seem? Is the world actually as hopeless and dark and bleak as it seems? Because, listen, I'm standing here and we're all sitting in this room and we live 2,000 years after the moment that the light of God came into the world and that light is still reaching forward through time 2,000 years later into this present moment. And if that light is still here and still now and still energizing and giving us the spirit, I have a really, really profound reason to say no, things are not as hopeless as they seem. And so I want to just give three reasons why that is. And the first one is we have hope because King Jesus has the resources to deliver on the world we yearn for. King Jesus has the resources to deliver on the world we yearn for. We all, every single one of us, are creatures of desire. Even, even if you like, have like a monk-like resolve to never like do anything that you want to do. Like every one of us is a creature of desire. We live in this awkward tension where on the one hand, if we completely deny all of our longings and desires, we become depressed, ill, broken people. But on the other hand, if we spend our lives trying to scratch every single internal itch and chase every longing and every desire, we become impulsive, addicted, self-destructive people. We live in this weird tension of desire, but no matter how much we chase after our desires, no matter how much money we accrue, or sex we accrue, or pleasure we accrue, or comfort or disengagement that we find, no matter how much we get, our sense of longing is always going to be stronger than our sense of satisfaction. Always. And this is where brilliant thinkers like C.S. Lewis come in and help kind of show us the way of what do we do? We have all these yearnings. We have a world that we long for. What do we do with all of this stuff that's inside of us? And he has this quote from your Christianity um, that you've probably seen memeified on Facebook a million times, but it's worth repeating here. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures, pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is fraud. Probably pleasure was never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest to the real thing. As I said earlier, we live, well, I didn't say this earlier, I meant to say this earlier, it's in my notes. <laughs> um, we live between the first and the second advent. The first advent came when this light came into the world, and we look forward to that light coming back into the world to finish the work he started. We stand between two advents. And at that second advent, when Jesus comes back, when he finishes the work that he started, all despair and all hope and all pain and all anxiety and sense of betrayal and heartbreak is going to be a distant memory. This present pain that you feel right now, this desperation, this worry, this deep internal hurt, this unfulfilled desire, the agony of unanswered prayer that you're experiencing, all of that, there is going to be a moment where you forget that you ever experienced it. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. 
We have hope because this despair is just a passing thing. We were made for another world, a world ruled by King Jesus, and someday we will live in that world. Second point is we have hope because we don't have to wait to experience that world. We have hope because we don't have to wait to experience that world. We live in what... um, I'm going to use a dweeby theological term right now, so just prepare yourself. Um, We live in what theologian George Eldon Ladd calls an inaugurated eschatology. Everybody say inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology is a word dweebs like me use to describe the time when Jesus will come back and he will set all things right in the earth. Another term for it is end times, although I don't like that term. I have a lot of theological issues with that term. But it is the moment when Jesus comes to earth and he fully establishes his kingdom on earth. And he sets himself as the ruler, rightful ruler of the world, the king of, the king of peace. Um, but an inaugurated eschatology means that even though Jesus has come, and even though Jesus is going to come again, the kingdom of heaven is sort of a here and not yet reality. Does that make sense? The kingdom of heaven has started. We can see sprouts of the kingdom of heaven in our world today, but we also still live in a world with pain and hurt and chaos and destruction. So even though the king has come, and even though we still have moments of interaction where we can sense that the kingdom of heaven is breaking through into this place, we also still have moments of deep despair and deep pain and deep hurt. It was the beginning of the end of Satan's rule on earth when Jesus came. You think about it like this. We live in between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day in World War II when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy to liberate Western Europe from the Third Reich was the beginning of the end for the Third Reich. And on V-Day was when the Third Reich surrendered, Victory Day. But how many of you guys know that there was a lot of work between D-Day and V-Day that we had to do to get to that point? That's the moment that we live in, in a spiritual sense. We live in an inaugurated eschatology. We live where the kingdom of God has started. It has been planted in the soil of the church. The kingdom of God exists when people who are filled with the Holy Spirit come together in like-mindedness and resolve to practice the way of Jesus together. And in that moment, you start to see sprouts of God's kingdom. Because guess what? Miracles happen, and healings happen, and prophecy happens, and the poor can be served, and justice can happen, and community can happen, and somebody who walks into this room who's never felt a sense of genuine connection and relationship can find another person who can genuinely embrace them as family. Loneliness can be dissipated here and now. On earth, justice can happen here and now on earth. Despair can be a thing of the past here and now on earth. Because we live in the time where Jesus has started the work of his kingdom. And it's going to be, it's not finished yet, but it's going to be finished. And I love this in his meditations on Advent. My favorite writer, Henry Nouwen, he says this. He says, the Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. I love that. Life is Advent. It is, a, it is recognizing the coming of the Lord. And lastly, we have hope because in the economy of Christ's kingdom, we will gain much more than we lose. The good news is that the kingdom of heaven is here. The tough news is that the kingdom of heaven is not yet. It's a both thing. So because the kingdom of heaven is here, we experience the peace and the reign of Jesus. But because it is not yet, sin, death, and despair are still an everyday inevitable reality of our world. But I like to look to the words of James in the first few verses of of his letter when he says this. He says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, count it all as joy. 
because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance complete its work so that you will be what? Complete. Lacking in nothing. This word, counting it all as joy, it's an accounting term. It's, it's literally like James is in a sense saying, like, take, take your life and put it in two columns. And you have a prophet's column and you have a lost column. And James is saying that when suffering and pain and trials come, you take all of that agony and you actually can put it in the prophet's column. Because in the economy of God, when pain comes, when suffering comes, you will gain so much more than what you've lost. God has this deeply mysterious way of taking all the pain that a life can experience, all the pain that a human can bear, and taking that pain and recycling it into something good and beautiful and beneficial, not just for the person in pain, but for the rest of the world. In the economy of Jesus, we gain so much more than we lose. We have hope because in the economy of Christ, when Jesus comes at the second advent, when Jesus comes again, all pain will be a distant memory and we will gain so much more than what we lose. So if you're here and you're troubled in your soul and you're weighed down by despair and you're feeling lost, you are the person that Advent is for. And I'm gonna, I gotta be honest that in a lot of ways that's me. Weighed down by some heavy stuff going on in life. We're the people that Advent is for. If you're here and you're in pain, this whole season of light coming into the world is for you. It is God's gift for you. And he has given you a logical, rational, spiritual, emotional hope to cling to in the person of Jesus. Because Advent, we look to the second coming and we remember that even when darkness persists, a light has come and is continuing to come. We have hope because we have a king who has the resources to deliver on the world we yearn for. We do not have to wait to experience the beauty and the goodness of the world to come. And in this king's economy, we stand to gain so much more than we have to lose. Mm -hmm.